Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about the Indonesian Council of Ulamas, or MUE, a conservative Islamic organization that has risen to become one of the most influential religious actors in Indonesia in recent years. In 2016 and 2017, for example, the MOE was instrumental in orchestrating the protests that led to the downfall of former Jakarta governor Basuki Cahaya Purnama. In this year's presidential election, incumbent President Jokowi appointed the head of MOE, Maruf Amin, as his vice presidential candidate. And should the Constitutional Court, as is now widely expected, confirm the victory of Jokowi and Maruf, the MOE will have reached unprecedented formal power in the Indonesian government. How did this organization, which has neither a mass basis nor a charismatic leader, establish itself at the center of power in Indonesian politics? How does it interact with other prominent Islamic organizations, such as Natlatul Ulama or Muhammadiyah? And what does its ever-growing influence mean for the future of Indonesian increasingly imperiled democracy? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions with Dr. Saskia Schäfer, a senior research fellow from the Humboldt University in Berlin. Saskia, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dirk, for having me. All right, Saskia, um, the MOE has gained quite a reputation in recent years, uh, mostly due to its very conservative and often quite controversial fatwas, its um, religious opinions. Issuing such fatwas is one of its main tasks, but the MOE has a number of other roles as well. So before we start our discussion about the organization's rising influence and the broader implications of this influence, can I perhaps first of all ask you to briefly explain what the MOE actually is and what it does in its day-to-day -day activities? Yeah, sure. The, the MOE is an institution that is really quite difficult to grasp. It comprises members from a large number of Muslim organizations, and it sits somewhere between the government and civil society. It was originally founded in the 70s by Suharto, on one hand to respond to Islamist demands for more influence of Muslim organizations, and on the other hand to enable the monitoring and also control of such organizations. And after 98, the MOE became a lot more independent, even if it still receives large parts of their budget from various parts of the government. The MOE understands itself as an umbrella organization that represents the major Muslim organizations. They're heavily involved in halal certification, which is a growing industry, and also in the organization of the Hajj. And besides these core issues, MOE representatives offer advice in a lot of other realms too, such as education and Islamic banking, for instance. And this advice, they, they offer this advice to the general public, to businesses, but also to politicians and to political committees, for instance. Okay. Did you say uh, they comprise members of different organizations as well? So that includes some of the broader mass organizations, I assume, like Natatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah, right? 
Yes, in, in some ways they actually claim to bring these together or to re represent both of these plus other much smaller organizations. Okay, and in its daily activities, is there overlap between the organizations or does MOE cover things that the others uh, don't cover? So, for example, with the fatwas, the MOE often makes headlines when it issues fatwas. But do the other organizations also issue fatwas? And what kind of authority does MOE have um, in this fatwa issuing? Yeah, this this is a very good and difficult question. The relationship between the MOE on one side and, and Muhammadiyah on the other remains one of constant negotiation. So NU and Muhammadiyah have their own fatwa issuing committees, as you say, but but they've ceased to issue fatwas pertaining to Aqidah, Islamic creed. In this realm, the MOE has become the most important authority. The reasons for this are very complex and we need more research in this particular area. But one of the reasons surely is the relative briskness and clarity with which the MOE puts forward its fatwas compared to the very complex and internally very diverse NU and Muhammadiyah. So the MOE, even though they're also internally somewhat diverse, manages to, to issue its statements in a relatively unified way. And this speaks to urban middle-class Muslims who are busy with their careers and families and have only so much time in a given day for religious questions. We may come back to the the issue of fatwas a bit later because, as I said, some of them have been quite controversial. But let me stick briefly with its relationship and its similarities and differences to the NU and Muhammadiyah, because um, these organizations are often described as huge mass organizations, even though I'm not sure if the actual claim memberships are verifiable. But um, we do know that NU and Muhammadiyah have millions of followers, right? The MOE is quite a different kind of organization. It's often described as a quasi-state organization, and you did say that it was founded by the Suharto regime as a quasi-state organization, but it doesn't have mass membership. Do you think that kind of special status contributes to its authority to speak to the whole uh, community of Muslims in Indonesia? Yeah, it's true that the MOE doesn't have this mass base, but I think they're able to make up for this by, by bringing their voice and opinions into a wide range of different debates. And what's, what's even more important than this is, in my opinion, they've managed to create an image of being quite independent from the state. So during my fieldwork, I got the impression that many Indonesians perceive the MOE as autonomous of the state. This is despite the fact that the MOE receives large sums from various parts of the government. What counts here is the impression of autonomy, not actual dependencies. The MOE worked hard to gain this image and it now pays off. So what has it done to become more prominent and at the same time create this yeah, perception that it is autonomous and independent. So they constantly publicly criticized the government. They formulated demands and they offered advice and they did it in, in the tone of a very strong actor who is in a position to make demands, also from a higher moral ground, so to say. Apparently that's been quite successful. Um, can you tell us a little bit of how the organization operates sort of internally? Does it have a leadership board that is um, elected by its members or does religious authority determine where you go in the organization or is it like a sort of quasi-typical Indonesian organization where clientelistic relationships basically determine where you end up? 
Yeah, it's not terribly transparent. So, so first of all, I think it's important to stress that it's a nationwide organization and that there are regional branches too. They, they take decisions and issue fatwas. And these regional leaders also sometimes disagree with leaders at the national level. But in the public perception, the MOE comes across as quite unified. So they usually manage to, to work out their internal differences. There are different commissions and groups for various tasks. For instance, the Law and Legislation Commission, there's a national Sharia board, and then uh, the very important Institute for Foods, Drugs and Cosmetics Assessment that takes care of halal certification. And then perhaps um, most importantly, the, the Fatwa Commission. So it's mainly the Fatwa Commission that issues fatwas during regular meetings, but then there's also fatwas issued during the National Congress every couple of years and during the scholars consensus meetings, that's also every couple of years. They follow specific guidelines in their interpretations of Islamic sources. And then there are also religious opinions that are less formally issued and involve different groups of MOE leaders. Most of these decisions are taken through consensus procedures, so not majority-minority relations or voting procedures. And uh, it's almost impossible to trace how exactly each decision has been taken. All right. So you mentioned the fatwa uh, committee, and that is yeah, one that often makes headlines. The other very important one is the one that has the authority to issue the halal certification, right? You mentioned that before, that this has become an important part of the MOE's day-to-day -day activities. How did it receive the mandate to do this? And what are the broader implications of this function? Is this an important source of income for them or just prestige? Or why is the halal certification so important? Well, so it was originally the Suharto regime that granted the mandate for this in the late 80s. And halal certification back then, of course, was nowhere near as important um, as it is now. Mm -hmm. One could say that back then the state missed uh, the moment to place this mandate under the Ministry of Religious Affairs. Today, halal certification is a massive industry and it gives the MOE a sizable financial income and it ensures their position as an authority for a whole range of different ministries that have to turn to the MOE for their advice and their assessments, the ministries of agriculture to health, tourism. For all of these, the halal industry and certification process make the MOE the main authority. Um, in recent years, that yeah has certainly become much more prominent. And the period in time, I think, where what's often described as the growing religious conservatism in Indonesia, where that sort of really became visible, was the presidency of Cecilio Bambang Yudhoyono, the 10 years that were politically quite stable, economically stable, but also saw this growing religious conservatism. And Maruf Amin played an important role during those years already, right? Can you tell us a little bit to what extent you see the MOE as a driving force behind this growing prominence of Islam in public life? Mm, I, I would say that the MOE has made three, three areas particularly prominent, this halal certification and then debates on orthodoxy and deviance mm -hmm. and gender and sexuality. By and large, the MOE has kept the focus it set in 2005 with their three controversial fatwas against secularism, pluralism, and liberalism, against the Ahmadiyya, and against interfaith marriage. The MOE claims the authority to decide what true Islamic belief and practice is. So this goes a little bit beyond identity because it has this universal truth component. 
And after some controversy about Shia Islam, they also added LGBTQ debates to their list of prohibited deviances. This was in 2014. And in some ways, the MOE's themes and strategies show certain parallels to conservative movements in other countries, such as Turkey, India, and the US. I'm not suggesting that it's all the same, um, just saying that, that these areas in which the MOE has been influential often pertain to identity politics in ways that are comparable to developments elsewhere and have this universal truth claim. Hmm. You mentioned that there are some parallels to other countries. Does the MOE have organizational, institutionalized links to similar organizations in other Muslim-majority countries, like Turkey, for example? Not structurally, no. There is a certain interest. Individual leaders often look in that direction, Turkey, but also Malaysia to some degree every now and then. But there is nothing structural. No. Okay. Well, one reason why I'm asking is because Turkey is, of course, now often described as a country in steep decline in terms of democratic values, in mm. terms of democratic uh, credentials. And in one of your recent writings, which was uh, published in the journal Pacific Affairs recently, you argue that the MOE is also a threat to democracy in Indonesia. Arguably, Indonesia is not quite where Turkey is at this stage, but clearly there are signs and many scholars have written about this, that uh, democracy in Indonesia is deteriorating. So let's talk a little bit about the role of the MOE in this. You've mentioned already some fatwas that go against some democratic principles. Where do you see the MOE's most dangerous influence on democracy in Indonesia? I think that the claim that there is an absolute truth that the MOE represents and that the MOE may therefore be allowed to circumvent democratic procedures and influence lawmaking poses probably the biggest danger to democracy. Just the sheer existence of an institution that is beyond uh, the checks and balances and accountability of, of democratic institutions. So this yeah, intransparent influence on lawmaking is almost always a threat to any democracy and particularly to a relatively new and fragile one. The council comprises of a relatively homogenous group of scholars who get together and regularly craft decisions that are then supposed to and do influence the legislature and jurisprudence. And the claim to absolute truth and their procedures do not align with democratic principles of, of randomness and most of all of accountability. Perhaps even more importantly, I think that by homogenizing Islamic diversity, the MOE is chipping away at a great treasure, Indonesia's religious diversity. Once there's a claim to represent all of Islam, this claim is vulnerable to the holier-than-though race and to mutually enhancing extremism. So how do these claims sit with Indonesia's state philosophy, Panchasila, and its basic legal framework? Are there tensions between the fatwas that the MOE issues and this broader political framework? Well, the Panchasila leaves enough room to maneuver, and also the Panchasila stresses the multi-religiousness, which is not something that the MOE touches upon, the MOE only marginally touches upon practices and beliefs outside Islam. What they are interested in is representing Islam. 
And there is nothing about Islamic diversity in the Panchasila that can be used to defend this diversity against MOE's claim to represent Islam. And how about the legal framework that Indonesia has? There have been some controversial laws in the past. The blasphemy law, for example, was upheld. And you said that the MOE does advise the legislature and lobbies lawmakers. So how does it exercise its influence there? And has its influence increased? You use the term lobbying. And, and I've been thinking about this term a lot because lobbying is already accused of being intransparent, but at least it happens in the lobby. And the idea is that it's supposed to happen in the lobby for ev visible for, for everyone and not through some sort of backdoor. But a lot of the influence of the MOE is not traceable and doesn't even happen in the lobby because it happens behind closed doors and it's not quite clear how exactly this influence works. Mm. So in order to really, really answer this, uh, we need a lot more research. And from a democracy theory perspective, of course, such influence is highly problematic. And yeah, maybe I can follow up there. You In your article, you list three re, three main reasons for why you consider the MOE a threat to Indonesian democracy. So you mentioned as the f most important one, perhaps, its claim to a universal interpretation of Indonesian Islam. Um, mm -hmm. So what are the other reasons for why you see them as such a threat? Well, another main reason is that the MOE has opened its doors and, and served as a forum for more extremist actors who otherwise would have probably remained on the margins. I'd be lying if I were to suggest that I understand all of the MOE's extremely complex intertwinements with, with other organizations, but the MOE excluded liberal voices from its decision-making ranks as early as 2005. And when key FPE figures used the AHOC controversy in 2016 to bring down AHOC and to rehabilitate themselves as political figures. I thought that MOE leaders were really too hesitant to distance themselves from these extremist figures. I mean, specifically, one of the chief organizers was the Islamic Defenders Front founder, Rizik, who, as you know, was convicted and imprisoned for inciting violent attacks twice. And they, the MOE really made room, gave him a forum to rehabilitate himself as a political figure, at least for this short but important window around the ousting and imprisonment of Ahok. Yeah, it seemed as if those protests, this mobilization against Ahok was perhaps the peak of the MOE's influence. And it was after that that it became clear that the national government, the central government, will also need to consider the MOE in its strategizing for the 2019 campaign. Mm -hmm. So would you agree that the mobilization against ARC was sort of the, the highest point for the MOE? Yeah, I think that this mobilization was the beginning of placing Maruf Amin, the, the general chairman of the MOE, as, as Jokowi's vice president. So in this sense, we've I think we've seen the preliminary climax of the MOE's Influence, But some of its observers also say that this is just one step in a much longer process of uh, increasing uh, Sharia-inspired laws in the Indonesian state and on the, the society level. Sharia-inspired laws have proliferated, especially at the local level. And you did say that the MOE has local branches all over the country. 
Do you know if they are influential or have been influential in devising these kinds of local laws as well? I remember some research that stated that many of these laws have been passed in areas where at least notionally nationalist politicians were actually the, say, governors or the district heads, but that they would regard it as necessary to try to bring in the more conservative Islamic elements in their areas, and therefore they create this um, Sharia-inspired bylaws. Does the MOE have a role in that as well? Do you know that from your research? Well, exactly as you say, those uh, political leaders particularly have an, an interest in showing Islamic leaders that they are ready to collaborate with them. And while, as I said, it's quite difficult to trace the actual lawmaking process, we know that the MOE gets invited to such meetings. And this is very important in, in a given area. So the MOE would would have their local leaders invited to consultation meetings around lawmaking moments, so to say. All right. Well, let's move back to the national stage. So Jokowi's relationship with the MOE is now, I think, a very interesting one. A lot of attention was paid to how he started to court Nahlatulu Lama in the run-up to the election, because Nahlatulu Lama does have the mass base and does have the votes, right? And that worked out quite well. But then it, it also got closer to the MOE, and the selection of Maruf Amin probably um, epitomized that. So now he's most likely to become vice president um, if the Constitutional Court confirms the KPU count. What are you expecting from Indonesia with Maruf Amin as a vice president? Well, as you know, Maruf Amin was one of the key figures behind some of the MOE's harshest fatwas, and that someone so controversial and also polarizing was deemed necessary to bring NU members behind Jokowi speaks volumes and does not paint an optimistic picture for future electoral campaigns. I remember one Indonesian colleague remarking before the results were announced that exclusivist religion was winning in this election either way. And whether Maruf Amin will stay on his path or try to be more inclusive now in his new position is, is too early to tell. But in any case, his presence alone uh, signals a kind of defeat of uh, Jokowi's attempts to curb the influence of hardliners. And then it's also a question whether we interpret Maruf Amin's new position as representing the MOE or NU. And yeah, this is something that we'll just have to watch over the next couple of years. Mm. Have you got any early indications of what Maruf's new central role um, will mean for MOE as an organization? So, for example, was was he widely supported within the organization? I assume that they were very happy when um, he was uh, named because I think initially Jacobi wanted to have a different vice president. But now that he's there, do you know if the MOE has any ambitions, any plans in the immediate future to use Maruf Amin to increase its role, to gain new authority perhaps over new aspects that it doesn't have at the moment? Yeah, this this certainly uh, changes their position vis-a-vis -vis the state. The MOE has always claimed to be above party politics and also derived some of its authority from that claim. So this new constellation is a bit of a challenge for them. 
Just one or two weeks ago, the MOE specialist Shafiq Hashim published a short commentary in which he discussed the internal debates on the question how to handle Mama Famine's vice presidency. So some MOE branches asked for the resignation, for his resignation from the MOE leadership, and others disagreed. And eventually they decided to retain Maruf Amin as a non-active general chairman. And um, his two deputy chairmen took over in these acting capacities, one from NU and the other from Muhammadiyah. But not everyone, of course, is convinced by this compromise. And so this might reduce the MOE's authority to some degree, but it's too early to tell what Maruf Amin is going to make of his new position and what the implications will be. Right. Do you see any prospects, though, for the future that perhaps with some new blood at the top, that there might be perhaps some efforts to reform the organization? I asked earlier whether they would want to widen their influence, but there's also some people who have been arguing that perhaps this is also an opportunity to uh, become a bit more inclusive, perhaps, and perhaps to bring back some of the voices that were marginalized in the early 2000s. Do you see that happening? or At this point, I don't see that much potential for, for, for such an internal reform. The, the path they chose after 98 worked very well for the MOE. And I don't see why anyone within the organization should try to choose a different path of trying to advance their own position within the organization or the organization itself. Of course, that doesn't mean that one should write off the MOE. As it's an extremely important organization and it's very important for Indonesian political activists to stay in close touch and in conversation with the MOE. All right. Maybe last question here. How do you see the future relations of the MOE with the other mass organizations? So you said that there are now two leaders, one from Muhammadiyah and one from Natatul Lama at the top of the MOE. And as I said before, the Natatul Lama reaped a lot of benefits from its support for Jokowi in the election campaign. So where do you see, especially perhaps with Muhammadiyah being a bit sidelined in the run-up to the election campaign and with Maruf Amin now at the top, how do you see the MOE's relationship with Nadatul Lama, but especially also Muhammadiyah? And can these large mass organizations continue to uphold their reputation as a more moderate voice of Indonesian Islam? Yeah, I think that this is probably the most interesting question in um, Indonesian religious politics at the moment. There have been attempts, and especially I think coming from the, from the NU, to remind people of the authority of the NU, also vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the MOE. But they will give Maruf Amin some time, I think, in this in this new position, and so it'll it'll be a while until I think we can reassess this. But I read the whole idea of uh, Islam Nusantara in 2015, for instance, as an attempt on the part of NU to reclaim their their voice and and their authority in this debate about who should be representing Islam, and there will probably be more attempts like that. And I think it depends on whether the MOE can can stabilize its authority through this new position or whether their authority will be challenged. Can you briefly clarify for our listener what Islam Nusantara means? Not everyone may be familiar with that term. Sure. Um, this is this idea um, that went into two directions. On, on one side, it was an attempt of soft diplomacy in a way to tell the world that uh, beyond the, the, the pictures that 
um, Daesh, ISIS was spreading in 2015 that there is a, a different kind of moderate Islam and that it's at, at home in, in Southeast Asia. So Nusantara means Southeast Asian Islam. And on the other hand, I also read this term as a contribution to an internal debate, what Islam is, what it should be, and who should define it. And I think that this was also an attempt on the part of NU to boost this um, in more inclusive traditionalist Islam that they represent. Mm, and that would stand in somewhat contradiction to the MOE's version of Islam and to its claims to represent the only true Islam in Indonesia, is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think that this Islam Nusantara concept is based on diversity and, and inclusiveness. And MOE, as I said earlier, is a, a lot clearer and quite brisk in their in their statements. And there's not that much room for interpretation. Okay, well, it sounds as if the relationships between NU and the MOE might be very well worth watching in the coming years then. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Great. Well, thanks very much for those insights, Saskia. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Dr. Saskia Schäfer from the Humboldt University in Berlin, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 11th of July for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and till next time.